0: Harvest is started across the West Coast of the United States for many nut and grape producers. In this episode of FieldLink, we visit with agronomist Paul Kraut about the importance of post-harvest fertility plants for trees and vines prior to going dormant. In this segment, Paul will share some valuable insight about the importance of potassium and the impact that it has on tree and vine crops. Plus, we'll catch up with Jody Lawrence for an update on the pro-farmer crop tour across the Midwest. Plus, Jody will share some further insight about the Ukrainian crop deal with Romania and how it's going to impact U.S. producers. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. Now joining me from the west coast of the United States is Paul Kraut. Paul's a, an agronomist as well as a Helena product manager. Paul, welcome to FieldLink. Thanks, Bill. As always, great to be talking to you. Hey, uh, Paul. Uh, it's post-harvest time for a lot of crops on the West Coast, as well as other parts of the country. Specifically, talking about trees and vines, and boy, you y'all got a lot going on right now, don't you?
1: Well, uh, this is a very busy time of the year. Um, in trees, we're we're shaking nuts right now, as they say. Um, almonds, pistachios, uh, and walnuts. We're you know we're in the process of harvesting those. Uh, we're we're harvesting table grapes right now. The early varieties of table grapes, wine grapes are coming into verasion They're starting to ripen, so we're going to be starting to harvest those very, very soon. Um, and uh, you know, so it's very busy. It's very busy for the growers. This time, ta- this kind of time, this time of year for for you know PCAs, Fieldmen, and the like, it it slows down a little bit. But uh, but you know, it, we're, we're going to be coming into a, a very important time. Uh, for trees and vines from a nutritional standpoint um, as we've complete harvest coming up.
0: Yeah, and that's, uh, like you mentioned, you're right in the thick of it right now, Um, and and, and growers are going to be quickly transitioning to their post-fertility concept, your post-fertility applications. So, Paul, you know, as we talk about some of these tree crops and and in your case, you know, and uh, specifically almonds, for example, let's talk about uh, so some of the agronomic needs for fertility as it relates to almonds and, and some of the things you got going with the AlmondWise program.
1: Yeah. So, AlmondWise, which is our, you know, agronomic, you know, whole season, whole crop kind of... Um, you know, consolidated program that, that we do, which is a combination of nutrient recommendations, sampling, um, and, you know, cultural recommendations, irrigation, the whole, you know, basically the whole nine yards. If you can think about an input on the crop, that's what we're talking about for Almond Wise.
0: Your, your best approach to raise that crop.
1: It, exactly. It's it's a holistic approach. Um, prescriptive, you know, prescriptive approach, and so you know, a, a a key component of almond wise and and as well grape wise in our wise programs, as we say in the in the West here, is is it's a fertility program, and so it's a season long um, program from from basically bud break to to post harvest, as we're talking about here. One of the challenges, one of, well, I guess one of the benefits of these programs is is that both the grower and the salesman have a really you know solid understanding of the plan, of what's going on, because we have benchmarks, specific timings, um, with specific recommendations that we plan at the beginning of the season. Because with growers, as we mentioned earlier, during harvest, it is a hectic time of year. Sure. And and remembering to do this post-harvest fertility, these post-harvest nutrition fertilizer applications are honestly one of the last things on the grower's mind. However, when we build a program and we build a plan, we have that in place. We've we already know what we're we're going to be doing, um, and so it makes it you know kind of a lot easier for the growers um, and our our consultants out in the field um, to get those those applications. Um, Staged and and then applied, um, and so you know this time of year as as we we pull through um, you know we pull through harvest. Uh, one of the key things that we've we've done about a month ago, if not maybe two months ago, was take an extractor tissue sample. Um, that tissue sample will allow us our agronomists and everybody to to understand what the nutrient status of the trees are. Um, at that time, and then that will help us adjust and identify areas of um, of need or you know of excess, and allow us to adjust our post-harvest fertilizer application to to best match what the trees' needs are um, going into dormancy as we get there in this this post-harvest period. So, I mean, talking about post-harvest fertility in general. Both in trees and in vines, I think it's it's really important to understand the the concept Um, because trees and vines um, they are you know they're they're deciduous they they go through they go into dormancy and and so prior to dormancy those the trees and vines are taking up nutrients and storing those in the roots and in in the woody tissue for use in the following season. So one thing that I, I, you know, one kind of um, comment I always like to make about post-harvest fertility is is that this post-harvest fertilizer application is the first application for next year. You're actually feeding your trees and and building that foundation for a, a strong um, you know spring flowering or spring bud break because in the spring all that all that growth that's coming from stored energy in the trees they're not photosynthesizing there's no leaves until there's you know five you know fully expanded leaves um, the trees aren't you know it, taking up any any water they aren't taking up any nutrients because they aren't Evapotranspiring, So, um, you know, all that growth and all that energy is from stored, you know, stored nutrition that the trees took up after, um, you know, after harvest before going into dormancy.
0: Wow. Uh, so there's a whole lot going on with that crop, uh, you know, especially as we enter into the next couple of weeks for a lot of these crops, as you mentioned, you're going to be having that fertility program really, I guess, uh, pretty well zeroed in on what that particular crop needs for next season,
1: yeah, exactly, and and it's obviously we we don't want to be guessing coming into post harvest because I think another uh, important concept in post harvest is timing. Mm-hmm. Timing is really critical. Um, we need to have if we have a cold snap and the trees you know start to tar- start to lose their leaves, um, leaves start to turn color. It's too late. We need to have um, that application made while trees are still have you know trees still have. You know, active um, photosynthesis. If if you see you know trees or vines that uh, that have brown leaves, it's too late. So we need to, you know, timing is really, you know, kind of the other critical component. And I think one, you know, one practice that, that most growers do is they do a post, you know, an irrigation um, kind of post-harvest to kind of give those trees and those vines a really good, you know, drink of water before they, they start to go dormant. And so that's the perfect time to make that. That post-harvest fertilizer application.
0: Well, you have the ability to incorporate that uh, to that water uptake, and you can include potentially some pretty unique products uh, from the Helena Products Group portfolio. Correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, key components of um, you know of a post-harvest fertilizer application. Um, typically, we're applying nitrogen. Um, we're applying potassium. Uh, as well as either some bioscience products or, or additional micronutrients that, that the plants might have, or the trees and vines might have needed, um, as indicated from our earlier tissue samples. And so a couple of key, I think, key components in those post-harvest fertilizer applications are our nucleus potassium, um, products so nucleus 0021 or nucleus 0015 um, you know a key component of when we apply any kind of fertilizer application is is uptake and and availability and at this time as i mentioned earlier we have a very narrow window before those trees go dormant so we want those nutrients to be available to the plant immediately. Um, we can't wait for, for things to break down in the soil because that might, you know, soil temperatures are going to get cooler or things are going to happen where where we can have uptake, you know, inhibition. And so we want immediately available nutrients. That's where pota- you know nucleus comes in. Um, those that potassium is immediately available to the trees or the vines. They can take them up um, and utilize it immediately. The other key component that we add is hydrohume, hydrohume liquid. Um, Hydrohume is is a, a key component in, in our both our grape-wise and our almond-wise fertility programs um, for a whole host of reasons, but but number one is assisting with nutrient uptake. Um, the organic acids in, in hydrohume help solubilize and, and make available other nutrients that might already be in the soil um, and especially from previous fertilizer applications. Um, so hydrohume is a critical component um, as well as uh, we use a lot of axol. And feruline micronutrients. Um, feruline being our iron micronutrient, and then axlo being our chelated, um, our, our chelated soil-applied line of other micronutrients. Um, again, the, the key is availability, um, because oftentimes we make a fertilizer application, and the tree might only have two or three weeks to take that up before weather changes or we lose leaves and stuff. So it, it's it's a really critical time period.
0: You know, Paul. Uh- there, there's a lot of things that can go into a fertility program, and one of the neat things about the almond wise program or the grape wise program, in your case, is it takes all of those things into consideration. And and you did a really nice job of laying that out. How nucleus uh, has that quick uptake, but you know the hydroheme liquid adds to you know the quick uptake and conversions and so forth, all to get that potassium, and that's a critical component of nucleus uh, for most of the crops that you're dealing with in in, in California and Washington as well as Oregon in that area and really any tree crop or 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 great crop uh, around the country for that matter is that correct
1: yes uh, you know potassium is in in my opinion is is the one of the single most important nutrients that trees and vines fruiting trees and vines um use. Uh, if you think about wine grapes, um, for example, um, for every ton of, of wine grapes we remove, every ton of crop we remove, we're removing 12 pounds of potassium. That's more than any other nutrient that we apply. That's more than nitrogen. That's more than phosphorus. That's more than um, um, calcium. So potassium is really, really critical, and not just in, in fruit fruit development and fruit load um it's also important in you know in as a growth factor within Permanent crops within trees and vines. Um, potassium is a, is a key component in um, you know increasing the the caliper or the diameter of the the xylem and the phloem within new shoot within new tissue. Um, so think about you know a straw. The more po- available potassium you have in the in the tree and vine, the larger that xylem and phloem is going to be. Um, so the bigger the straw is, that the in and the capacity of that. That tissue to be able to take up water um, and nutrients. High levels of potassium also help with frost. You know, frost resistance um, in the springtime. Um, they it helps with uh, you know a whole host of other other factors, not just where people think about you know fruit production or sugar production or carbohydrate production. Um, so it is one of the key you know key nutrients out there. It's also one that that is often unfortunately ignored. Um, you know, to, to other nutrients. But like you mentioned, uh, an almond-wise and a, a grape-wise um, and honestly, any Helena, you know, fertility program that, that's built addresses all of those nutritional needs. Um, I think a key component of those programs is is that we, we really follow the, you know, the four R's uh, principles of, you know, the right product, the right rate, the right time. Um, in the right spot, and, and those programs are really driven to address not only the, the nutrients and, and the the form of the nutrients, but also the, the right timing, because because trees and vines need different nutrients at different times. And so, for example, in this post-harvest fertility time, the two the two nutrients I mentioned, one of them being um, you know potassium, the other being nitrogen. Those are the two nutrients that are really really critical um, that the, the the trees and vines are taking up um, that they're going to store over the you know over the over the dormancy period. Um, and, and as a, as a kind of a rule of thumb, when I build a fertility program, say for grapes, I'm applying, you know, 80% of the nitrogen, um, in season. And then about 20% goes into this post-harvest fertility application. And I would say the same holds true for potassium. So we're really targeting that, you know, specific time when the trees need and and vines need these nutrients, um, within that that kind of program approach.
0: And Paul, I think it's important for our listeners uh, that are tuning in, all of your advice that you're talking about certainly is applied to, you know, growers and almonds and grapes in the West Coast. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the same strategies can be implemented in whether you're a pecan grower in or pecan however you pronounce it in Texas or Georgia or or, or uh, a grape grower in uh, New York correct
1: absolutely I mean you know really it, it doesn't really matter where you you know where you're growing you know plant physiology plant crop needs are are really the same. You, it's just the you know the areas that you have. Some areas might have plenty of potassium in the soil. Say in in parts of Texas, for example, um, where we really don't need to apply as as much potassium. I would argue that there still needs to be some potassium applied. Um, but uh, you know, absolutely, whether in your uh, you're in New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan. You know, Texas, Georgia, whatever you're, wherever you're growing, um, you know, the method of application might be different. You might not, not everybody might be on drip irrigation like we are in California. Um, You know, it might be, you might be. Dry farm, um, so you might not have any form of irrigation. You st- plants still need those nutrients, so the, the 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 nutrients that we apply, the fertilizer inputs that we apply, they might be different. They might be dry as opposed to liquid, or the method of application might be different. We might we might do a you know a, a shank application, um, or you know a dry band application, or we would fertigate. So it's it's it it really you know it doesn't matter where you are, the, you know, the nutrient demand is, is going to be there, uh, is the same. Um, And, and I think that's the, the, the neat thing is, is that we build programs based on the grower specific situation. We don't have a, you know, kind of a one size fits all kind of program because that, you know, that might work, but, but, you know, but that really isn't in the, the spirit of what, we're all about which is prescriptive fertility um, you know drilled down to you know to the least common denominator for the grower be it you know be it a, an irrigation block be it a um, you know be it a a um, you know a variety block uh, whatever is the the least common denominator for the grower we're building our programs to, to specifically address those. Those needs.
0: Well, and, and, and what's exciting about that is all of those programs are really focused, as you mentioned, with the 4R uh, uh, process in mind. Um, and that is so critically important for the grower, but also for the environment as well. And we're taking all of those things into consideration when building out a program like AlmondWise and like GrapeWise. Exactly. Uh, you know, having to farm and, and write
1: recommendations in california as i'm sure you can imagine we're uh, we're quite regulated when it comes to you know obviously not only pesticides everybody knows pesticides but nutrients as well and you know really nitrogen is is the the big one um just because nitrogen is so mobile nitrate is so mobile in, in water so you know every Grape wise and almond wise program we have is based on a, you know, we have a a nitrogen budget that that we build where we take into consideration, um, you know, the water, the amount of nitrogen in the water, the amount of nitrogen in the soil. Um, you know all those different factors, and you know the the nitrogen needs of the crop. We take that all into consideration, um, and then you know we we build a, a program based on that. And uh, obviously, in these post harvest applications, we are you know we're very you know well aware of those as well, um, because as we get into the fall and the winter, uh, we certainly we get rain. This is the time of year that we get rain is in the winter um, here in California, and so we got to take that into consideration as well.
0: Well, uh, Paul. Uh, definitely a critical time for uh, almond growers as well as grape growers uh, throughout uh, the west coast right now as you mentioned earlier on harvests in play uh, the next 30 60 days are pretty critical great time to take advantage of a fertility program building that program before we get into fall dormancy to take advantage of this next 30 60 days before things really uh Kind of close down for the winter, correct?
1: Exactly. You know, we'll be you know from a, a nutritional standpoint and a fertility standpoint, this is this is our last chance to to set the stage for you know for next year. Um, I mean, in my 20 plus year career as you know working in nutrition, plant nutrition, and, and especially working in wine grapes, I've seen where we've you know situations where we've missed this. Post-harvest application for for one reason or the other, it was too late. Um, irrigation went down. You know something happened, and we weren't able to get this you know this application on. And honestly, when I when I see the you know the growth the next year, it, it's you're 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 kind of starting with you know you know, one leg, you know, one arm time behind your back a little bit, you know, the the crop potential in my mind is, is going to be a little bit more, you know, limited um, just because those plants are going to be starting out from a, you know, kind of a hunger, a deficit or deficiency situation, um, and and oftentimes it's you know the soonest we can we can catch up to fix that in the spring, uh, you know you you've lost you know a couple of months of of opportunity there of growth, so you know again I, I always encourage growers it's it's you know it, you, you might think about it as you know oh this last application you know we can we can skip it or you know whatever but but really it's like i said it's it's the first application for next year so if you want to you know if, if you want to you know you want to ensure that that your crop and 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 you know the growth and the and the the potential the crop potential is going to be maximized. This application is is really
0: important. Paul Crowd, I want to thank you for joining us here today on FieldLink and sharing some of your insight as it relates to post harvest fertility for wine grapes and almonds and other tree crops uh, throughout the West Coast, but really throughout the entire United States. Thanks for joining us, Paul.
1: Bill, uh, always a pleasure. Love, uh, as you can tell, I love talking about fertility. It's a great uh, great time to be to be talking about this because, hey. Now, as you mentioned, the next 30, 60 days is uh, you know, its going to be whether or not we, we make or break
0: next year. So thank you. Thanks, Paul to uh, Nashville to catch up with Jody Lawrence. A lot happening. We got the Pro Farmer Tour going on, Jody. We've got uh, some things happening back in Ukraine again. Uh, A little little love being happening there uh, in in Europe as far as trade's concerned, Uh, as well as uh, certainly some weather conditions impacting the crops across the Midwest. Jody, welcome to FieldLink.
2: Thank you, Bill. It's good to be back. And like every uh, August, We've got a lot of things going on, some new wrinkles. Uh, the war in Ukraine is something we, you know, have been talking about for the last two August. So uh, weather got, uh, got so many things right now and just seems like we're, uh, you know, uh, all the bullish news is getting hidden under something because it's uh, markets have been on a tough road since the August 11th crop report.
0: Yeah, let's touch a little bit on that uh, August 11th report, Jody. Uh, what did the USDA come out, and what are they sharing at that point in time?
2: Their yield numbers were actually a little bullish because they were below – what the trade estimates were, they came in at one seventy five point one for corn and fifty point nine for beans, and we started the year with trend line at one eighty one and fifty two so the may June dryness certainly figured into some yield uh, loss the way the USDA was calculating their data. This report was done largely through farmer survey. They did a little bit of field work, but not very much. You'll get more plot tours and more plot results in September. And then obviously in October, you'll have uh, a lot of the country Either in the very early start of harvest, or if you get further south, a good bit into it, to where we'll have some hard data. But the you know the numbers were bullish, and then the uh, rain started, and the rain offset the uh, yield decreases, and now we've got corn, December corn trading. Uh, near back down near the lows in the low 480s. You've got beans, while they've been on a tear lately, are uh, off a little bit today as the heat has been fully priced into the market. And this is going to be the hottest week of the year, easily, the growing season. And there are going to be some records set across the, the plains and the western corn belt. But with 300-degree days on Uh, in forecast for the Des Moines and the greater area, uh, that's always something that gets the market's attention. And it got the attention last week, but now we're getting a little bit of a sell-off. And some of it, I think, is simply by the rumor sell the fact that, okay, the heat's here. The forecast didn't extend it into the weekend or into next week. And pro-farmer is finding consistent results with expectations so far in South Dakota, North Dakota, where they started, and then Ohio and eastern Indiana yesterday. To the, and they're moving towards the center to meet in Illinois on Thursday. But uh, it's uh, in, inconsistency is the word that I keep seeing most often out of the tweets I'm looking at from the Pro Farmer Tour, that they covered a a pretty much about a 50-mile square area, which really isn't that big when you talk about, you know, how far you have to go to cover 50 square miles. And they had fields from 50 bushels an acre corn to 220. So you can see the spotty nature of the heat, who got rain, who didn't, things that were going on, uh,
0: yeah, uh, you know, Jody, it it is quite a quite a difference. It's kind of the haves and have-nots in 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 terms of that early pro farmer report. The state of South Dakota uh, early report showed, boy, things look pretty darn good in South Dakota as it relates to soybeans and corn compared to. 22. Uh, on the flip side, Ohio's not doing quite as good as 22, so certainly uh, some spots that are doing okay, uh, but others, eh, not so good.
2: Yeah, th- I think that's the whole uh, going to be the whole theme of the tour is inconsistency, and as they move their way and the final results are released Thursday, It's going to be interesting to see if they verify or somewhat disagree with what the USDA is finding because pro-farmer tour, I'll give them credit because they certainly have found a route and have some historical consistency about where they are. But at this stage, especially with the heat that's coming, they're going to be somewhere uh, on beans, one bushel on either side of what we see from the USDA, and about two bushels on either side from what we see from the USDA moving forward. So it's a good yardstick, I guess, but it certainly is not the final number, and I don't think that it's going to substantially move the market one way or the other unless they get in to the real uh, meat of Eastern Iowa and central Illinois and find out that the May June heat really caused a lot of uh, you know uh, cob uh, uh, just blank you know blank firing and a lot of empty cobs and uh, and low low kernel low test weight potential. We're just going to have to get through the end of this to see, and by the end of the week, we'll at least have some affirmation from pro-farmer that the May-June heat and lack of rain— uh, has negatively impacted the crop.
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's important to go back, as you mentioned on the front end here, Jody, the USDA information, that is a survey. That is a, that's a a—that's a survey. It's a mail-in survey to growers across the country, and they compile that data. And, uh, you know, that's that's how they've been doing it for, I don't know, 100 years or more. Uh, but that's how they collect that information. It amazes me uh, with all the technology advances that we have today that we rely on that Type of collection of information, but the data is the data. Pro Farmer, we're putting some boots on the ground. I think they've got over a hundred agronomists out scavenging fields, as you mentioned on their tour, starting in South Dakota, working their way through Nebraska, and into Iowa and Minnesota, and on the east side, starting in Ohio, working their way uh, across Indiana as well as uh, Illinois, and then meeting up in the middle and calculating those numbers. And that's a neat thing to kind of follow along and. At the end of the day, you know, comparing those uh, two numbers together to see kind of where we think we're going to land. And I I think that's the important thing, think we're going to land, because the real number, as you mentioned, Jody, that's not going to happen until January after harvest.
2: Exactly. And the dry nature of what's going on, and we've seen this, uh, I want to say, really the last year was COVID harvest in 2020, where we had some excessive heat and some uh, real fast dry down in August and September, so the harvest may be starting a little bit earlier than normal if this weather pattern holds. Because what I'm looking at certainly dry, uh, too dry for the, to finish the bean crop where everybody would like to see it into Labor Day. And corn at this point, and we can tell by the way the market's trading, weather is al- almost uh, of no impact to corn uh, at. at at this late stage. While a lot of people will differ with that opinion, the market is telling us that they are not adding any weather premium or Yield loss to the heat from this week,
0: Jody. Let's transition a little bit. Uh, you mentioned uh, Ukraine uh, on our opening. They've, they've they've got some agreements in place to uh, distribute, you know, their grain crop out through Romania and others. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that and how that could impact our global market.
2: Well, what we have thought for the eighteen months that this has been going on, that at some point Russia would want to basically cripple all of Ukraine's infrastructure and their ability to finance the war. And a majority of what Ukraine has to export is their wheat and corn, their agricultural production. We've known that for a long time. And everyone made to this point the incorrect assumption that Russia would do everything it could to bankrupt Ukraine through blowing up the ports, blowing up of the rail lines, blowing up of, uh, you know, or, or just destroying anything that would allow them to get grain out and get dollars in. And what's happened, they came in and they allowed the Black Sea Export Corridor deal late last summer. It's been about a year since those rumors started, and I think it went into effect late September, early October of last year. Then they ended the export corridor about six weeks ago, and that's when wheat shot up to $8, and now we're back trading in uh, the low sixes, that the until we see a any type of disruption out of the shipping lanes and the exportable capacity for both Russia and Ukraine, we're going to have pressure on the grain markets through wheat in particular. And right now, r- Ukraine just is uh, finalizing a deal, apparently, with the European Union, with Romania as the uh, largest player in this, that all of Ukraine's grain is going to be able, either through rail or water, get through Romania to get its way through Europe and then be exported out through all the European ports. And Russia, to this point, has been able to, other than the SWIFT banking regulations or the uh, problems or the sanctions that the that NATO and the UN put on them really they haven't seen anything they had a record wheat crop and they've been able to export and ship 100% of it ukraine's made no offensive to stop that and china certainly has uh, been a partner with it impossible to tell how much but they we know they're a substantial partner in getting all of russia's exportable supply out so this is going to go down when we look back at this and get to the final tally, hopefully the war ends, that this is going to be the most overhyped uh, world logistics nightmare that never
0: happened. And, and a lot of that's because China is sitting there willing to purchase everything they can from Russia, and, uh, and it's certainly to impact U.S. exports as well. Oh yeah
2: because it's uh, when you look at the and th- there is a bright spot on the wheat market if you want to call it that for India but whenever you look at the, across the world cash markets if you're just looking at the world cash markets in between Brazil's record bean and corn crop And Russia's record wheat crop, the U.S. has not been cash competitive for uh, at least the last six months, if not almost the entire last year. And with that lack of competitiveness, our exports have suffered. Uh, Corn exports are uh, the worst I can remember in my career as far as the percentage and going down, and that's largely due to Brazil's exportable supply. Uh, being so large, a very strong US dollar because of all the rate increases and the, uh, uh, the lower trend of all of the exportable, exportable countries' currency. So we, we've been in a bad spot since the Fed started fighting inflation. So for the last, you know, we're what, uh, a year plus into the rate increases. And it's it's certainly shown up on our export supply. And if we're not competitive in the world market, there's no reason for anybody to buy from us. The one interesting thing that we're keeping an outlook on for the fall is India's monsoon season was very poor this year. And they are going to go for the second year in a row from a net exporter of roughly 300 to 400 million bushels of wheat and then a substantial amount of rice to net importers of both rice and about the same amount, 300, 350 million bushels of wheat. And for the time being, they're getting – they got – nearly, from what the cash markets are telling us, about 250 million bushel deal with Russia for wheat. So we know that India, as they transition to be the world's most populous country, are going through the growing pains of an increasing population of a poor monsoon season with diminished production of their two major protein supplies and food sources from wheat and rice. So it's something to keep an eye on, but certainly it's not anything where you look at the markets today and say that they've got a premium in there.
0: Well, that's a great point about India, Uh, you know, uh, being an importer now because of really Mother Nature. And it'll be interesting to see what markets they lean to. Will they lean towards their, I guess, historic ally, United States? Or will they look for that, uh, you know, that Russian wheat uh, to, to be shipped in there? Uh, they've got some conversations taking place there. So definitely a whole lot happening in the global markets as it relates to grains and commodities.
2: And one other thing, and this goes back to the weather and the outlook for Southern Hemisphere production as we wrap up Northern Hemisphere production window and switch it over to South America, Brazil, Argentina, Australia, and those important production areas. El Nino, when we were in the transition where the U.S. had the really dry May-June, when we were transitioning from La Nina to El Nino, it was a very slow, drawn-out transition. And now, all of a sudden, it has picked up tremendous pace, and El Nino has strengthened quickly, and that historically, not every time it happens, but historically, that brings in inconsistent southern hemisphere growing seasons Yield results, hot, dry weather, and we're already seeing that because the first tip was the Indian monsoon that did not turn out well. Argentina is in the third year of their drought. It is creeping north into southern Brazil, and Australia's wheat crop is under some severe stress. You look at the world maps, and basically it's raining. Everywhere around Australia, they look like the hole in a donut of where there has been no rain for weeks at a time over the entire continent. So something worth watching, but, you know, trying to make a long-term marketing plan by uh, what ifs. On world weather uh, is never a great idea but it is something that we are keeping an eye
0: on definitely something to keep an eye on as we you know kind of wrap up uh, this growing season for 23 harvest is going to be starting it is starting in South Texas and Louisiana for sure Uh, certainly going to be working its way north uh, throughout the Midwest and the upper uh, Northwest here over the next 30 days to 45 days so Jody want to thank you for joining us here today on this episode of Phil. Link, We look forward to having you next time.
2: Okay, Bill, thank you, and good luck, everybody, to get through this heat and stay cool.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. If you produce almonds or grapes, be sure to follow us on our social media platforms or contact your Helena representative to learn more how you can become more almond-wise or grape-wise.